Okay, everybody. So this afternoon's session in this hall is being facilitated by James Ward, who um, is the head of School of Natural and Built Environments of the Uni of South Australia. He teaches and does a wide range of research, mostly based on numerical modelling, in the hope of contributing to a more sustainable world. His work spans different scales from global problems, chiefly limits to growth and constraints to work world energy resources to local solutions with a particular focus on sustainable food systems. Today he'll be looking at the work that he and his students have been doing on urban agriculture with a view to creating replicable models for urban farms and productive gardens. Let's welcome James Ward. Thanks very much for that. I'm just disentangling myself here. And thanks everyone for coming back after lunch. Hope it was enjoyable. All right. Is this on? That'd be great. Yeah, thirty minutes. Then we'll and then I'll start talking really quickly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So. Um, all right. So this. Presentation culminated after um, <laughs> Alan. Yes. If I just put that in the way, that's a good plan. I'm going to try it that way. Is that okay? All right. Everything else okay? Is my glass of water in the way? All right. Okay. <clears throat> So this came about because uh, Nat Wiseman and I started talking about numbers and, and Nat and I share a love of um, Microsoft Excel spreadsheets, uh, as I'm sure everyone here does. Um, and, and we started thinking about, well, what are, what are the sort of the numerical sides to this urban agriculture piece that um, maybe don't get talked about enough? Um, and that's what led to, to me coming here to talk about this sort of idea of viability and um, and quantifying things in um, urban agriculture. Uh, but we're going to start with some really big picture stuff. As Anne-Marie said, some of the research I do is at the global scale. So those of you who remember the, um, uh, An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore might remember that he talked about the, um, the sort of paralysis that comes from being in either denial or despair. Now we've got uh, governments that are mostly in denial, and the rest of us are mostly in despair because of that. But the third D, if we try and avoid denial and despair, we can fall into the third D, which is delusion. And I see a lot of, in, uh, in sort of the technology space, in engineering, I see a lot of things that I would characterize as delusional. So they're not denying the gravity of the problem, they're trying not to despair, but the thing that they're putting up is not really a re realistic solution. And we want to avoid that. We want to go somewhere uh, in between all of them. But we're going to think global for a minute. I'm going to race through a bunch of stuff that's um, global. And then we're going to try and drill down to the local. Um, this is the first time I think I've attempted a presentation that stitches together these two scales. So I've normally given talks about global stuff and I've given talks about local stuff. And 
So if this feels a bit Frankenstein's monster, like two things have been sort of um, stitched together, that's exactly what I've done. And we're going to see uh, how it goes. So thinking global, this is the basic work from the Ecological Footprint Network, says we're consuming 1.6, 1.7 Earths. Um, that's the biocapacity per person across the, the world. And this is how much we're using. The thing that drives that so much bigger than the biocapacity is the carbon footprint. Um, but also our cropland footprint, our grazing footprint. I can make it available. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how, but... Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it, it could be put, put on the website. But, yep. All right. Um, yes. Yeah, sorry, because I am going to be speaking relatively quickly um, to try and get through the 170 slides that I've got. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, 26 minutes left, right. It's okay. Um, so we're thinking global. So we've got the ecological footprint. We're using 1.7 Earths. You might have heard of the term planetary boundaries as well. Um, so we're talking about things like climate change. We're talking about things like the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, biodiversity loss. These are transgressions of what scientists consider a safe operating space for humanity. Now, what I would draw your attention to is that the nitrogen cycle, phosphorus cycle, biodiversity loss, and a large fraction, a non-trivial fraction, maybe 30 40% of climate change, are pretty closely related to our food system. Okay, it's what we're doing to the... Uh, to the planet in order to procure our food. Uh, and it's, it's pretty closely related to um, the sort of industrial growth. So what's fueling that industrial growth? Well, as Anne-Marie said, some of what the, the work that I do has been related to world energy. And if you look back a couple of hundred years in the past, you see nearly continuous exponential growth in coal, and then we added oil, and then we added gas. Um, natural gas, and then we added a few other things like nuclear and hydro and stuff like that. But more than 80% 80, 80 of the world's energy comes from these three types of fuel. You might wonder what these numbers are. These numbers are called exajoules, and an exajoule is 10 to the 18 joules, which is a one with 18 zeros after it, which I was thinking, does that mean anything to anyone? It doesn't mean a lot to me. I, don't, I, I could write it on, I could carefully count the number of zeros, and it still wouldn't mean anything to me. So I spent a little bit of time yesterday, thinking, how, how can we conceptualise this amount of energy? Um, and I thought, well, what's, what's something that's tangible as an amount of energy? And for some reason, I landed on the idea of the amount of explosions in World War II. It's one of the most destructive sort of projects that humanity is, has done to itself, is to blow itself up. So um, one exajoule is 80 times the total explosive power of World War II, which means we can characterise our global energy use by saying this is the number of World War IIs per year. So we're currently in all of the engines, where all of those little explosions in our internal combustion engines, all of the coal-fired power stations, all of the factories, all of that fossil fuel is about 40,000 times the explosive power, all of the bombs that exploded in World War II. Another way of thinking about that is that every day we explode more energy than 100 World War II's. That's the magnitude of the energy um, that we are currently using with 7.5 billion people on the planet. 
that acceleration in energy is related to what we call the Great Acceleration, what scientists call the Great Acceleration. Um, so looking at a time scale from pre-industrial to the mid-20th century to now, I'm going to race through these. Population's gone up by a factor of three. There's our primary energy use, gone up by a factor of five since the mid-20th century. Fertiliser consumption's gone up by a factor of eight. Um, the GDP, the real GDP, that's economic activity, has gone up by a factor of 10 in that time. Carbon dioxide concentration's gone up by 30%. Doesn't seem that much compared to the other numbers, but think how big the atmosphere is. And we've changed the concentration of one gas in that 10 kilometre high, let's say, to the troposphere over the entire planet, changed the concentration of one gas by 30%. It's vast. Nitrogen flux we've already seen uh, by a factor of five. Marine fish capture by a factor of five. Terrestrial biosphere um, species loss gone up by a factor of two. This is the great acceleration. So this is the global picture. Most of those graphs that I just sped through are related directly or indirectly, mostly directly, to the food system. This industrial food system. And they're all related to the fact that there are too many people. Now, <clears throat> you might remember, those of you who've been kicking around in this circle for, the, for more than the last uh, 10 years, might remember that we got pretty excited about peak oil about 15 years ago. Um, and we seem to have forgotten about it. We're worried about other things at the moment. But peak energy is, I think, still a pretty big threat that we're facing. So uh, in 2015, we published, led by Steve Moore from uh, University of Newcastle, um, sorry, uh, UTS, University of Technology, Sydney. Um, so we've got historical energy, and we predicted ranges of future energy consumption. So we're all worried about Adani, and rightly so, but even with Adani, we're not going to offset um, a, a 2050 peak in world energy. We're heading towards a peak and decline of world energy, whether we like it or not, and whether we uh, destroy the planet by opening up new coal mines or not. Um, and our best guess has us turning this corner within the next five years. And so at a global level, we have all sorts of boundaries that we're bumping up against. This era of growth that we've been through is coming to an end. Um, we might think renewable energy is going to solve that problem with, with fossil fuels, and hopefully it does, but let's just take that best guess and let's just assume that we can level off at, say, optimistically double our current energy. Remember our current energy is 40,000 World War IIs, or 100 World War IIs per day. Um, so let's, let's say we can double that and power it all from wonderful, clean, green solar plants and uh, wind turbines and, uh, and fun things like that, oceanic kelp farms and you name it. Let's ignore the fact that if fossil fuel goes down, then the growth we have to uh, experience here is double the growth we've had uh, historically. Let's assume that optimistic target is right. And now let's fast forward to the end of this century. Uh, Walter mentioned a figure of 10 billion people by mid-century. The mid-range UN population projection is 11 billion people. And let's assume, for the sake of the argument, that some of us in this room think it's a good idea for things to be equitably shared. If we share that doubling of energy among 11 billion people, 
It's good news for low-income countries, it's good news for lower-middle-income countries, it's reasonably good news for upper-middle-income uh, countries. For high-income countries like Australia and like the US and like Canada and like most of Europe, we would have to halve our per capita energy consumption. So that's in a very optimistic scenario where we've doubled the world's energy supply from clean green sources, we would still need to halve our per capita energy consumption. That means all of the cars and, and vehicles that we got here in would need to, would either need to have had twice as many people in them, carpooling, um, or they would need to have consumed half as much fuel, or half of us would have had to have stayed home and not put the heater on. All right. So that's the big picture context. So like it or not, one way or the other, we are going to be going through some phase of degrowth, which is completely in, in contrast to the era of industrial growth that we've had for the last 250 years, roughly. So that's the good news. Um, <clears throat> now, I'm not an economist, so what I'm about to give you is an economic model, but I'm not that ashamed of not being an economist, because to be honest, the economists haven't done a particularly good job of getting us into this mess. So I figure um, we can stray into their territory. So this is my economic model of how the industrial cycle works. You've got capital to invest. You invest that in labor-saving machines. Uh, that decreases the demand for labor. Um, that gives you an increased return on the labor that you do have. So in, in other words, if I'm sitting on a tractor, I'm going to get more return on my time by tilling 10 hectares than I would if I was using a shovel and a fork tilling a tenth of a hectare. Okay. And that gives me more money to invest in more labor-saving machines, which decreases the demand for labor. And this is the virtuous cycle of capitalism. All it requires as a system is large amounts of energy to power the machines. Uh, we need to uh, send the people somewhere else because they no, no longer get employed. And it helps if you've got capital to invest in the first place. So what this really is, is a system where people with money uh, use energy to disenfranchise the majority of people. And so that's industrialization in a nutshell. In the, in the context of agriculture, or the, the food system, this uh, requires increasing scale. And with increasing scale, uh, it requires increasing distance. Okay, Because by the time I've been around this cycle enough times that I'm now tilling 1,000 hectares, I can't do that in Unley. Right? Um, <clears throat> so. The, the machines get bigger and bigger, the scale of the operation gets bigger and bigger, and the distance gets larger and larger. And as the distance gets bigger, you need the scale to justify the size of the trucks and, and trains and things that are doing the transport. And so this thing it has increased scale baked into it as a system, as a feedback loop. Um, and we see this in the data. So uh, in my lifetime, the average farm size in Australia has doubled and the number of farms has halved. Okay, the continent is not quantitatively larger or smaller than it was. The amount of farming land is roughly the same, but um, the farms are bigger, and there are less of them. So they're coalescing. In fact, the share of employment in the primary production space, if you take farming, fishing, and forestry, has uh, gone from 8% down to 3%. So it's less than half as a proportion of people being employed. So we're seeing this system play out. It's spitting people out. They then have to go and work outside the system. So our industrialization system, our industrialization of the food system, is reducing our ability to participate in it. That means that all of the choices we would like to make 
about how our food is produced, to try and address those global trends that we're seeing, biodiversity loss, nitrogen, phosphorus, climate change. We have, have diminishing ability to participate in the system to make those changes because the people in the system are the few who are left, who had the capital to start with. All right, and universities are, and the R&D space is not re really helping because uh, research and development. Thank you. Um, because people at universities are chasing grant money, that means we're chasing people who have money, which means we're chasing the people who, who are in that system. So if they want robots to harvest their, um, their capsicums to squeeze even more people out of the uh, workforce, then universities, and this, I don't think this is a university job, it's just an example of a research and development activity that took place in Europe. Kind of makes me sick, actually, just looking at it. Um, but, and, and I don't know, maybe there's an argument that says, well, that's employing other people to, to busily design the machines that, but I don't know, it, it, to me it's, it's, it's an abstraction and, and it doesn't allow us to participate in the food system the way we want to. All right, <clears throat> so why are we here? We're here because we actually oppose this system, I think, by and large. I mean, does anyone in here here because they actually are fiercely pro-industrial capitalism and, and large-scale agriculture? I mean, I, I made some assumptions. Yeah, I knew, I knew you would be, Stephen. But um, I um, did make some assumptions about the audience. Um, <clears throat> so we're here because we actually think this stinks, and we want in. We, Okay, we, we could wait until we make enough money outside the system uh, to have the capital to try and get back into the system. Um, and I, uh, I don't know how I stumbled across that, and I could not for the life of me work out whether it was a, like a legit article or not. And to be honest, I didn't, I didn't want to read the article once I saw the picture. And it, yeah, anyway, um, so... So... We could, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the barrier to entry, so that not just the wealthy who, or people who've inherited a large farm can get into agriculture. We definitely need to reduce the energy in whether we want to or not, and we're going to have to. And we want to reduce this sort of um, baked-in uh, feedback loop that, that kills off jobs. We want people to actually have gainful employment in the food system so that there's a recipe for endless participation in the food system. So we can address those problems with the way that our food is produced, and we can continue to. Um, and so we would th therefore like to unwind this scale feedback loop towards reducing scale, reducing distance, localizing the food system and increasing participation. And just to throw some, some alternative uh, labels into the diagram, we might say that instead of having capital to invest, you've got sustainable businesses that uh, adopt appropriate technology, that's appropriate scale technology, we're not saying no technology, that provides safe work conditions and rewarding work, so you don't have to work 17 hours a day with a, um, a shovel and fork, necessarily. Safe and rewarding work provides a living wage, okay? So that's the sort of system that we're here to promote. And we're familiar with the vision, okay? This is a picture that's already out in the um, in the meals area. That is a, an image from the Great Transitions Initiative. Um, we, can, we can spend all afternoon 
um, on Google Images, finding visions of sustainable futures that involve urban agriculture. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I do draw people's attention to when I look at this artist's impression of the future is this water wheel, which appears to be a perpetual motion machine <laughs> because the water is not coming from anywhere. But <laughs> as a water engineer, I, I, I do feel compelled to sometimes point these things. Also, I don't know, but whatever they are growing, this large leafy green thing is employing lots of people. Um, <laughs> all right, <clears throat> and of course, yeah, so we're, we are, I think we're all more or less on the same page in terms of being drawn to these types of visions. That's why we're here um, at this sort of event. You don't come to a, an event called Deep Winter Agrarians if you don't have, to some extent, uh, some buy-in to this type of, of view. But I want to draw you, you know, go back to that first slide about despair, denial and delusion because we need to be careful that these are not delusions because there are other things when you Google urban agriculture that come up. Things like this, the age of vertical farming is officially upon us. That is a delusion. I don't know what is going on here. Now you probably can't see the detail but these little things why am I pointing? I've got a pointer. These little things here are those little vertical axis wind turbines that are, are on the ship at the start of Waterworld and things like that. And they're just peppered all through this sort of urban forest. There is no way there's any wind blowing around that building like that. So, but again, that's the engineer in me. So <clears throat> we can look at that and think, well, that's, that's deluded as a vision. Think of the embodied energy in, in these sorts of buildings compared to whatever on earth they're proposing to grow inside them. Um, how do we apply the same sort of BS filter um, to our own visions to make sure that what we're promoting, that we, something in our, in our core says this is good, this is worth uh, fighting for, how do we actually sort of make sure that it's not a delusion in the same way? All right, so I've been, the, um, the topic was defining viability and this is where I might, I call them ideas because, you know, these are my ideas and they may not be shared by you. You might um, disagree. I'm hoping that I'm going to finish in time for us to have a good, uh, a good chat about it. So some ideas that, that for me are related to viability and, and may not be shared are replicability and accessibility, maximizing that. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a sec. Uh, and then I, ca I, I came up with this. These are particularly long words for an engineer, um, but um, I'll explain what I mean by uh, minimizing systemic external subsidization of, um, of the system uh, in a minute. It may be, for those of you who are more sort of, um, uh, sort of happy throwing around large language like that, you might get what I'm coming, where I'm coming from. But the first bit, replicability and accessibility. So, that's Curtis Stone's Profitable Urban Farming. Uh, that's a, just from his, the website for his course. That course costs $1,100 US to do. Um, and I don't know if, if everyone could afford to do that. Maybe some people in this room have, have done that course. Um, I'd, I'm not offering an opinion for or against it. Um, the bits and pieces that I've seen of Curtis Stone, um, uh, I think he seems to be um, doing good work. 
but I'm wondering if everyone adopted his profitable farming technique, would the system work or would the system be overloaded with people supplying a particular type of product? And does the cost of participating in the system that we're talking about uh, actually sort of prohibit people from participating in it? Uh, this is related to the next point, this subsidisation point. Okay, if, if we've got a, a vision for a different food system, a sustainable food system, a local food system, but our enterprises that uh, make up that system depend on free resources beyond what we can replicate throughout the system. So if I wanted to set up a small uh, a micro farm here in Willunga, and the only way that I could make that work is if I got, uh, if I was given free water by the, um, the local wastewater treatment plant, let's say, and free nutrients by going and getting all of the food waste from every restaurant in town, which I then composted, I'd have this beautiful enterprise um, that is um, made possible by those free resources. That's great, but then the next person wants to set up an, a farm because I'm doing so well. They have to pay $3.49 a kilolitre for their water and they have to buy in nutrients from peat soils or, um, or Jefferies or Neutrog. And their enterprise doesn't work, okay? So that's, that's sort of related to the replicability, but in this case it's an enterprise being subsidised externally. Um, <clears throat> or if the only people who can afford my expensive leafy greens that I'm growing in, in my uh, little market garden, the only people who can actually afford that are the people who work in the city for the oil industry, for the investment banking industry. Um, <clears throat> or if the, only, if the only reason that I can even afford to spend so much of my time um, on this market garden is because I have a partner who's some wealthy investment banker or, or something like that, um, then maybe I'm not demonstrating a viable system. Um, and that's one of the things that, that got Nat and I talking back in the day was some of the data that Nat has been collecting, um, or so much of his data has related to actually working out what is his living wage when he, when he um, does his, um, both at, at Wagtail Farm and since upscaling to the um, uh, Village Greens. And it's so important to work out whether you're actually making a living wage or if the only reason that you can actually have food on the table is because somebody else in your household is making a living wage. And I'm not pointing the finger at Nat, I'm saying that what he's doing is great because it's actually shining a light on, uh, on this issue because if we want this system to be actually replicated and have more people participating in it, then those people have got to take home a living wage, one way or the other, okay? Um, or if you've got a system that is um, based on initial conditions that no longer exist. So if I'm demonstrating uh, a permaculture farm that, um, that has been in existence for several decades, for instance, when land was five times cheaper per hectare than it is today, that's not necessarily... Those, those conditions might make my example difficult to replicate um, in today's world. So... Whether that's actually a subsidisation, I'm not sure. <clears throat> All right. Now, in 2012, we did some work for Salisbury Council because they were interested in this idea of livelihoods in local food. They were interested in the idea of 
backyard food gardens, reducing the cost of living um, for their residents. That's in the interests of the council. Okay? It's in northern Adelaide, so they've had huge job losses due to the closure of uh, the Holden plant. In 2012, that was a looming threat. That's since happened. Um, <clears throat> and so anything that can improve people's cost of living or provide new avenues of employment is, uh, is good. And so we did a, started with a literature review of urban agriculture to see if there are examples of this actually providing new sources of revenue. And we found that most uh, celebrated enterprises, especially throughout the US and, um, um, and Europe, they don't actually make a viable income by selling the food they grow. They mostly rely on um, one or more of these, so donations. So we had Mike Abelman come out here and really, you know, really admire what they're doing and, um, and the ethos behind uh, soul food um, in Vancouver. But they're 50% uh, reliant on donations, so they are a philanthropic organisation. That's, that's good. We need, we need organisations that rely on donations. We need philanthropy and we need things to be subsidised and we need to access free resources. I'm not against any of these things, but we just couldn't really find much in the way of urban agriculture examples that didn't rely on, on these sorts of things. And instead of growing, or they might, they might sell the produce, but generally the dominant income stream was from things other than produce, like running courses on how to become a profitable urban farmer, for example. Um, <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> and if you can find ones that, um, that do make a uh, turn of profit uh, from the produce they grow, it's usually a, a very uh, tight range of crops, like uh, fancy, fancy lettuce and things like that. And there's a place for that. Um, but again, in terms of replicability, so I'll talk about that in, in a minute. And m most of the food that uh, is grown in backyards and gardens tends to cost more than it would if you bought it at the shop. Now, that's a really controversial statement because most people then um, get quite angry at me when I say that because they say it's not about saving money. But if you're going to a very low-income household that doesn't have enough money to put food on the table and you propose a solution to their food that's going to cost even more than the food that they can't already afford to put on the table, we need to have a really good reason as to why they should listen to us. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, I'm going to... Uh, Leave, park that one, because um, I could already feel the temperature drop in the room slightly when I said that. Um, so, in response to this idea that we don't have these examples of um, uh, sort of these viable, replicable, scalable, accessible models, um, this is where the, the number crunching began, and thought, well, maybe we can use a computer model to try and, and work out what would be a best case scenario. So maybe... Um, and, and, and so we approached it with a, a technique called linear programming, which is a form of optimization. Uh, ran a few different objectives, but one was maximizing the gross profit per square meter. Did this by, by feeding in a huge database of different crops that all have different yields and they have different dollar values and they have uh, different water requirements. And the model was then able to say, okay, well, how many square meters of basil should you grow and how many square meters of carrots should you grow? How many square meters of broccoli should you grow? Um, in order to, over the course of a year, give you the, um, the most profit per square metre. Um, <clears throat> and it then constrained it by 
the number of people who are eating from that space. Holy moly. Ten left. We're getting there. So what we're doing here is what we're trying to avoid is a situation where, let's say we've, uh, I've set up my um, market garden and I'm providing, a, it's a small-scale CSA to 25 customers and that's all well and good. It doesn't uh, make any money, but that's okay because the other half of my business I'm supplying to a local restaurant and um, <clears throat> that supplies leafy greens, some uh, fancy, fancy lettuce and so on to maybe 10 times as many customers. That's profitable, so the whole thing is then profitable. All well and good. The person next door says, I'm going to do the same thing. And they set up the CSA. They're able to find another 25 people, because that's easy enough, he says. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that the part that makes this profitable is that I've already stitched up that market with the 250 uh, salad eaters. So all that's left is the unprofitable part. So what we need the model to do is we need to actually make sure that these two numbers don't disagree, that we don't have an enterprise that, um, that commandeers the high-end market at the expense of everybody else who would like to come into that market. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. <clears throat> so we feed in this data that has, has different uh, dollar values per kilo, which we uh, got from supermarket prices, different yields, which we got from commercial horticulture and, and just assumed it scaled down. Um, that's a very rubbery assumption. And then maximum demand. So we actually constrained this within a model of a human diet. So in fact, what the model does is <clears throat> you can squeeze the, the amount of market garden down to zero, and it will actually then just optimize your diet. So if you wanted to uh, work out what's the smallest land footprint um, to exist on, thinking in the future, thinking of an overpopulated world, um, the model will actually tell you that. And then you can say, and now how much of that can I grow myself or grow locally? Um, and, um, and the model tells us that too. So um, I'm happy to make the, make the publication available. I find it's, so you print it out uh, single-sided if you've got a really wobbly table, or double-sided if it's only slightly wobbly. And that's the best thing to do with a journal paper. Um, so, um, all right, so we put these things together and we end up with, um, this is absolutely critical. How many people are we feeding per square metre or how many square metres of our, of our farm are allocated to each consumer? And we feed in a whole lot of data, data on um, irrigation requirements, data on dietary servings to do with nutrition, data on um, price per kilo. You'll see that there, if, you, if you're really quick and you're scanning down that list, you'll see there's tofu, for example. And we weren't suggesting people grow tofu in their backyard. Um, um, that was part of the, the broader diet. So this, in fact, if you scrolled right down the list, you'd see it had beer and it had cheese and it had crackers and things in it because we wanted to nest this inside a real diet. And, and those things were, were assumed not to be part of the, the market garden or the backyard garden. Um, so um, we just wanted whatever it spat out as a, as a viable kind of market garden to be nested inside something that you could actually say is a, um, is a kind of a desirable um, diet. And it was constrained by a total number of kilojoules per day, total amount of protein per day, and so on. So people would survive on this, in theory. Um, okay, <clears throat> so the governing variables are how much land you've got and how many consumers there are feeding from it. And we get this 
interesting kind of curve where let's say we had 1,000 square meters selling to 25 customers, so it's 40 square meters per person. You can read off this graph, 40 square meters per person, and we can expect a gross return of something like $30 per square meter. That's based on what the model spits out. Now I reckon, is Nat in the room? Where is Nat? Or is he? He's out there. Um, I reckon that from what Nat has told me, um, with again, my, my yield data came from commercial horticulture, which was a rubbery assumption, <clears throat> and I think that intensive, really well-managed market gardening, you can probably push this curve out maybe by a factor of two uh, to get twice the, um, the dollar return. But that's gross. That's um, before you've got labor accounted for. So <clears throat> the important thing is this meter squared per consumer, all right? So if I have 1,000 square meters and I'm going to try and grow salad greens for 1,000 people, then that's only one square meter per consumer. But if I'm going to try and grow sort of all of their vegetable needs, I might be at 200 square meters per consumer. And I might only supply five people from my 1,000 square meters. That's really important because as this total garden area or market garden area per consumer increases, more and more things need to be grown because you can't just grow strawberries I can't um, grow 160 square meters all of strawberries. That's more strawberries than one person can eat if you grow them well. In fact, my record with growing strawberries, I probably could grow 160 square meters of strawberries and probably still not have enough strawberries. Um, <clears throat> but So you can see various things kind of break into the model at different sizes. Some things are in there even at, at the very small um, scale. Oh, our model did include eggs, by the way. Um, eggs are very, very high yielding um, in terms of dollars and in terms of grams of protein and energy per square meter. Per square meter of growing space. If you include a catchment area for the feed that they consume, it's a different story. But in terms of what you can grow in an urban space, eggs are among the best. Okay? So the problem, of course, is that as we go to these really large sizes of garden per consumer, we're having to throw in all sorts of low-value produce, um, and therefore our yield of dollars per square meter goes right down, and it gets uh, bigger as we come down to less diverse planting. So there's only about five things in this garden, um, and we're getting a much larger return per square meter. Um, <clears throat> all right, so take-home message one is that that diversification is key, not saying make it as diverse as possible, but actually saying that the design of your diversity is important. It's important to have high-value crops to subsidize the low-value ones within reason, thinking about that replicability problem. If you have too much in the way of high-value crops, then um, the next person may not be able to replicate your model. Now, that might not be a problem, but you need to actually work out, are you uh, trying to design something that is replicable? Um, the number of consumers per square meter does dictate that design crop mix. So there's, a, there's sort of a lesson that, that is... Um, that is learnt there. Now I'm going to scoot through this in terms of this is step two, and this is a work in progress. This is at the, um, I haven't got any results to, uh, to show you. But we're going to talk about optimization of the economy of scale. Now if you go and look up a, uh, in an economics textbook, economies of scale, they'll look something like this. You've got a production cost, and then you've got these curves. Um, so we've got the sort of the production volume, and you 
each curve represents a different technology. So in the case of farming, it might look something like that. So the highest production cost per kilogram of produce will come from hand tools, and the lowest production cost per kilogram of produce comes from large tractors. And, but they exist at different production scales. I've just gone up in steps of 10, just because it's easy. Now, in terms of economics and making a business viable, you might have a retail price, and that might eliminate hand tools, because the retail price that you can get is less than the cost um, of producing. And you might have a wholesale price uh, out here that might make large scale viable, um, maybe. Okay. In fact, there are only two viable spaces on this diagram. One is where the retail price is greater than the, uh, the cost for the rototiller. This is made up stuff. I don't even know what crop we're talking about. It's purely, <laughs> it's purely as an illustration. And you might have a wholesale scale that works out here. What's important is this no-go zone. All right. Now, um, I know in having done some research in the field of aquaponics, uh, most aquaponics ventures, business ventures, um, are unviable because they get the scale wrong and they end up in this no-go zone. Obviously, we're not talking about small tractors. But, um, we're talking about a, a different scale uh, paradigm. But I believe that the same lesson is true in urban agriculture. If you are slightly too big to capture a retail market or to, um, to easily capture a retail market, if you grow too much to sell at the farmer's market or too much to process through a local CSA, then, then you can miss out on that retail price, but you're, you might be too small to be competitive in a wholesale market. And, and therefore, you can be uh, basically spending a lot of time wondering why things aren't working. Okay? So challenges then are to figure out different business models that allow you to capture a, a direct-to-consumer market at a slightly larger scale. Or, and this is where I think that the Jetty Food Store um, business... Um, and if you don't know anything about the business, talk to Stephen afterwards. Um, I think it re represents a really interesting example because it pushes the wholesale price back down the, um, the volume. And maybe that means that you can get into a, a lower investment paradigm that actually keeps your price above your cost. Um, so this is the stuff that we need to start talking about. The reason we need to start talking about it is that ag science basically ignores uh, a conventional ag science and agronomy basically says we just need to push it that way. That's 40 minutes. That's 40 minutes. Okay. Um, so I was going to then click through some, um, some completely made up data. So what I'll do is I'll click through it so quickly that um, um, basically we're just sort of saying this is the start of the conversation going forward. This is where the research needs to go. Um, because ag science is not delivering on small-scale stuff. We've got to start talking about these differences in, in terms of um, how big is your farm and how many consumers are you, are you trying to deliver and what sort of mix are you going? Just high value with the high, uh, high dollar yield or a mixture of all sorts of things? And then looking at these scale dependencies. Um, so the gross value of what you produce, the implications for capital, what is appropriate technology? What's an appropriate level of mechanization? In, um, and um, the retail versus wholesale marketing structures, I think, are really uh, important. And then also transport, distance and, uh, and mode. That's, we talk a lot about food miles in this community, 
or we did it in the past, but it's not just how far you go, it's also the, um, the type of transport um, that's really important. <clears throat> so from here, actually I'm going to just go straight to the final slide, which you can do, or you can just do it by clicking through, can't you? Let's just do that. Um, so this is, a, this is basically placeholder data. It's what we're expecting to sort of be able to show uh, once we get some real, some real information. Um, looking at the implications of those scale questions to, to labor and, and dollar returns. Um, but there's no point dwelling on the data because I made it all up at this point. Um, <clears throat> but this is the sort of thing that we actually need. I, I believe this is the sort of, these are the sort of questions this community requires. If they're not, please tell me, and I'll spend my time doing something else. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what we're hoping to get is some sort of estimated return on labor, where you can say, well, what is your sort of minimum, uh, workable minimum wage for, for a person working on a farm or whatever, and I just plucked a number. Um, and then that can tell you, okay, well, if we were trying to do 160 square meters per consumer, that's the uh, dark blue line, that doesn't get us up to that minimum wage based on a whole bunch of very, very rubbery data that got put into this model. Um, but at 80 square metres per consumer, you could potentially be turning a profit if you're on a 20 hectare farm. At 40 square metres, now bearing in mind, as we go down these numbers, we're getting less and less diverse and a larger and larger percentage of high-value crops. So at 40 square metres, we might be able to make ends meet somewhere between 2 and, um, and 20. But if we want it to be really small scale, like a village greens type um, scale, which is somewhere between 0.2 hectares and 0.4 hectares, I think it's at 0.4 hectares now, you might be looking at something in the 5 to 10 square metres of production per consumer. Um, so <clears throat> that's all uh, placeholder stuff, but it's sort of the, an indication of the direction of the research. So where to from here? We are, we've built a greenhouse. We're planning a launch later in the year. Um, we're calling it the Urban Ag Lab, and we're going to be creating a space in conjunction with the city of Salisbury to do real research, quantitative research, in urban agriculture and small-scale agriculture. Testing different irrigation methods. It's got three different wicking bed technologies, including a um, completely experimental one. We're going to try new business models. And if you want to hear more about it, please get in touch with me. So I've gone slightly over time, but we do have 25 minutes for questions. Yes. Um, one of the things which you've considered there in your terms of um, profitability and retail price is um, what farmers can do at pushing price points on the edge of seasons okay. with relatively cheap construction by polytunnel. Yep. So it's another way in which mm. you might take the same vegetable but get a price for it. Yep. That's just another method which can use to increase the profitability. Sure. No, that's a really good point. So that's on the on the um, economies of scale graph. You mean that had the retail price and the wholesale price? It's a problem with having so many animations there. 
Yeah, so I guess you're, you're sort of saying that you might be able to push this retail price up by cleverly timing your tomatoes to be ready just out of season or something like that. Um, yeah, and any, anything that moves that up, if that's able to move you above this line, for example, then that could be the difference between having viable um, small scale. Yeah, yep. No, that's good. So, I mean, I, I, this is obviously a very abstract drawing, but I think it's really useful to be thinking about, well, what could you do? And that's a really good point. It's not just moving left and right, but yeah, anything you can do to move it up and down is, is good. Yes? Um, another thing is you're, you're measuring volume, kilograms of vegetables being produced, but what if you measured um, kilograms of nutrients? So to um, Walter's earlier point where on the left on the left hand side he had natural food versus industrial food. Right. Remember that one? So instead of looking at kilograms, it's generic vegetables. Why not look at nutrients? Yeah, we could because do that. That is something where small growers can beat the industrial every time. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. So um, with, the, um, with the masses and masses of data that we put into to this model, um, we went to just basic nutrient databases and, and, um, and looked at the energy content of different things, and, and that's what fed into the, um, into the model so that these, these had to, um, they had to represent the dietary food groups, orange vegetables, green vegetables, etc. But yeah, I guess what you're saying is that if, if there was a value, I guess the, the thing is, do people actually put a price value on? Not yet they don't, but a carrot could look good but, and be organic, but it might actually have not a lot of nutrients in it. Right. Just because it's chemical free doesn't mean that it's high in nutrients. Yeah, okay. But maybe our consumers that we should be targeting if we get the value, mm -hmm. the high nutrient vegetables, mm. um, that might be a good thing. Sure. I mean, at, at an even, you, you mentioned organic. We just assumed conventional prices. So even if, if we uh, tripped this over into organic prices, then it would, it would shift um, organic or, or, or some, some other price point that, that exists that attracts a premium. Um, maybe low, uh, low pesticides and things like that, which are labels that some people will pay a premium for. Um, yeah, then those sorts of things could also push these dollar values up and increase the viability of small scale. But it doesn't fit poor people either. Right. Yes, Walter, yeah. look, just following on from that, I think the point we're making is that basically, yeah, we're in a jungle here, it's a competitive business environment, it's loaded deliberately, purposely, strategically, so you can't win. Right. Because most of the real costs aren't what you had. These are externalised costs of the consequences. Right. So I think the point Monica's making that, look, we have to change the paradigm. You know, we've got to make the proposition that the nutritional integrity of the food, its health value of the food, is in a different ballpark completely. So your data on cost per kilogram or nutrition per you know, dollar mm -hmm. per kilogram, now here's another whole set of data values and go direct to that market on yep. that different business. So really the point is we've got to design new business propositions, not try to play in the status quo 
until we wind back the status quo to more labor intensity within that paradigm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another way to look at it, different, different way to look at it, to basically say, well, let's just um, take the bat and ball and go and play in a different yeah, space. Yeah, um, Yeah, but then um, the issue could be, um, as, you, as you said just at the end, that if part of what we're interested in is greater participation from consumers who don't have high purchasing power, then if we go and set up a, an, an elite food system based on high nutrient density, well-grown, um, sustainably uh, produced food, then have, is that just an enclave for the rich with a, who are pure of heart? I'd, I'd argue by the time you get to that point, then it'd be affordable for the poor people as well. Right, okay. So maybe, there's, maybe that's the answer, is that we do that. You would have changed the food system already. Yeah. So uh, Curtis Stone says this as well. He's like, go, what's wrong with going to the rich and getting get your money to do something that's good? And then if it increases your scale, it'll become more affordable for everyone. Like trickle down farming. Trickle down. Yeah. Well, it works for the economy, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I think, was there a hand up over here first? Sorry, I've lost. Um, another way to look at that is then, if you actually look at the nutrient-like integrity of the vegetables, then you can rescale what it's worth to grow stuff in your backyard and actually show that to be more cost-effective when you also add in health costs and other factors to actually put it onto a scale where low-economic, socio-economic uh, people with those constraints can participate and know that what they're doing is actually creating a cost-benefit yep. rather than compared to the... And the other thing with the supermarkets is that they're offsetting, their, their cost of vegetables is lower because they make their money from gambling and alcohol. Right. And that's how they keep their costs lower and they also buy up the farms and the poor farms who can't afford to sell the products to two big players. Yeah. So their costs, if you're using that, you need to show that that's actually factors in the low costs and then compare that to what it, the fact that the nutrients, high integral foods, and I don't know, it's really tricky, and there's lots of grey areas, but you can actually use the data that you're making to really show a good case mm -hmm. for why people would low, not high incomes can actually play in this game and be winners. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, I'll come to the back. I think Alan, you had a. Yeah, can we go to your last slide again, please, Chad? There's lots of clicks to get there. <laughs> God. All these fake crafts. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Are you saying is that facility already set up? It is, yeah. It's a repurposed greenhouse that we used for a different experiment. Um, it does have wicking beds. I just didn't have a, a, I couldn't find a photo of it, so I had to use one of the sketches that we uh, used before we, we kitted it out. So all that it's lacking at the moment is um, the, the plumbing and the uh, plants, yeah. It's got a cool room and... Yes, yes. So it's, I was saying to, um, I think to Joel at lunch that the, we've got, it's kind of the, the inverse problem from a lot of urban ag um, kind of startup projects in that we've got 
resources coming out of our ears. It's set on a 10 hectare site that the council is happy for us to play with for all sorts of urban ag kind of experiments. We just don't have people. So we've got all the resources and, and we've got unlimited water and, um, and land and... Um, yeah. So yes, if you want to get involved, get in touch, please. Anyone who wants to get involved. Yes. Uh, now, sorry, there was a question right at the back. Right. Mm. So that can't be cheap. That can't be cheap way to feed your family. So maybe if the food is more nutrient-dense, it will become more important because the kids will be full. Um, mm. That's just kind of another way to look at it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a whole area of um, uh, nutritional science that I'm certainly not an expert in, but um, it does strike me that... But I, what I would say then is if the answer is don't, eat, don't bring packets of chips but bring fresh fresh fruit, for example, that might be cheaper per kind of calorie and, and in terms of feeling full, more full per dollar spent on food, then if we're still going to say well, you should grow your own or, or source it from a, a small-scale producer, that still may be more expensive than going to Coles or Woolworths and buying the, the fresh fruit. So the, there, are two, there are two parts to that. One is, is the education towards eating more healthily, uh, which may in fact save money. Um, and then the second one is, can we deliver those nutritional benefits within our reimagined food system? I, I think another part of that as well is the, the kids would, that I've given my veggies to want to eat the veggies. Mm. And that's right. the other part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they would have to be fed more than just what they're eating. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in the back of my mind, there's there is this voice that is sort of saying all of this obsession with kind of economic viability may be missing the point because maybe the point of small scale and local food systems is, is not necessarily to provide a t an outright competitor to the mainstream food system, but it's to provide, um, yeah, and, and a, uh, an awakening. It provides an avenue to sort of give some um, great produce to people and they sort of say, wow, well, why does the stuff at the supermarket not taste like that and demand that it does? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, now, I think that you had your hand up. It's just, it's a bit of a like, question. Okay. But um, I just wondered what your thoughts are on the um, one thing particularly struck me is um, when you were talking about systemic external socialisation. Yeah. Um, you were studying about. Um, uh, only being able to afford this fact by being employed outside the system. And I'm just wondering, like, reflecting on traditional industrialised agriculture, that's actually the case in quite a lot of cases as well. Right. And so, I mean, I think although you know, our interest here is in maybe a much more smaller scale, I think there's something to be said about people also working in those systems, that they aren't necessarily doing that great either. Um, well, this speaks to uh, Lockie's point, I think, doesn't it, about the fact that the, the food that is provided at such a low price in the supermarket may only be able to be provided at that low price because it's being subsidised by gambling and... Yeah, but I think that's a really good point. Um, 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 I think that's a really good point. Um
Yeah, yeah so sorry. I, I mean, I suppose my point is, like, you know, it's, sort of, it's really just confirming <coughs> is our food system as a whole needs to be at, not just small scale, right. but the whole food sure. system. They're getting pushed eventually offshore because that's their way of being able Because these people will just be pushed out of They can't afford to live in that system or don't want to mm. live in that system where. Like, it's not us and then that's sort of what I'm getting at. It's mm. not the industrialised food system, not. Mm. The whole food system needs yeah. a real. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yes. So, like, we're relatively small scale producers, not on the side of things, but what opportunities that gives us is it allows us to do more in the field of connecting with our consumers and educating them about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and being transparent about what we do. So, I think there's an incredible value for small scale producers that isn't necessarily, I don't know, if it might be measured in a monetary value somehow or another, um, just in terms of the mental health producer and also for the consumer as well in just reconnecting people where that food comes from, mm. healing those relationships, healing the land, healing the process as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'll just go to the one right at the back and then I'll come. Is it? So, yeah, I, I totally agree with Adjo. Like, I run Urban Farm in Newcastle and there's a program we run every weekend which is called Wake Up Farm and the whole idea is around just reconnecting people. Mm -hmm. and like the benefit of mental health, being out there, just engaging people on that side, and that's how you can change the paradigm of what people see value in. Yep. Around yeah, growing food and see the connection of everything, because there's this huge disconnection from yeah. what we all know is growing, but it's, that's the best way of doing it. That's the, that's the advantage of being in an urban context, that you've got masses of people around the river. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, okay, there's a there's a whole system that we're, yeah, lots of people are growing different things and what your modelling shows is that certain products should be grown by small, small, small farmers that are local in the community because most of those products, most of those high value products also uh, degrade very quickly, yep. whereas the ones that are more, that, that are more um, viable for the large scale can actually be moved, moved around to, uh, mm. more easily. So, Rather than seeing it as a, your analysis is saying, oh, I'm not small scale, it doesn't work, it's actually like just focus on what we're good at and it will work. Yeah. It's part of the broader system. Yeah, I, I, um, I completely agree. And in fact, the next, as envisaged by me, the next wave of the optimization model would have actually been trying to design a nested food system that had the perishable, worked out what, which ones of the perishable foods should be grown like within the city. Uh, versus in the immediate vicinity as peri-urban and then which, which things are actually sensible to transport long distances. And grain, yeah, grain, you can put it in a, a silo for quite a long time, you can put it on a truck for a long time, you can move it relatively efficiently. But, um, yeah, basil, not so much. <laughs> yeah, no, really good point. Well, we probably need to wrap up this session now. There's obviously room to talk about this food today.